0: Well, good morning, South Valley Community Church. We are in week three of our series, The Voice in the Whirlwind: Doubt, Suffering, and the Wisdom of Job. Now, if you've been with us the last two weeks, you've already sort of been introduced to the book of Job and you're realizing how rich it is, how nuanced it is, and how it wrestles with some of humanity's most deep questions, questions like, is God good? Is God good all of the time? Does God always reward those who are on the side of good? Does God punish evil? When does he punish evil? And a host of other questions. Now, one of the most beautiful and frustrating, simultaneously, issues with the book of Job is that, it answers some of these deep questions, but it doesn't answer all of our questions. Some of the questions we have about those issues, it sort of leads us as if it's going to answer those and then gives us a different set of answers to a different set of questions. And we said since the beginning, it's because God through this book wants to answer the questions that he knows we need answers for, not the ones that we think we do. And so before we jump in, just a brief review from week one and two, and then we'll get into the content of week three. Week number one, we're introduced to Job and we realized he was a righteous man. The text says that he's a man who has got, he's got the good life. He's got a giant family. He loves his kids. His kids love him. He's got wealth. He's got all kinds of like goats and camels. So it's like ancient Near Eastern style wealth. He's just, he's got it all it has got a great life. And we are then introduced and brought into the heavenly courtroom, if you will. And God is sitting on his throne and he's approached by, in Hebrew, the ha the accuser or the challenger. And the accuser makes an accusation against Job. And the accuser says to God, Job is only obedient because you blessed him, which, which is a deep deep um, question and accusation that has to deal with human motivation. Why do we do the things that we do? Or more importantly, why do you or Job actually obey God? Do you do it just to be blessed? Do you do do it just to receive goodness? Or are you obedient because you love him? And Satan's accusation, the accuser's accusation, that Job's a good guy, but you've given him a good life. Take it all away take it all away and see if he maintains his goodness. And when we say take it all away, we mean everything. Job will ultimately lose everything, his wealth, his riches, his possessions, even his family, his children. Job loses everything in his life. But yet he in turn does not accuse God. He maintains his righteousness in the midst of his suffering, which brings us to the content of week number two last week. Job has lost everything and he's in the most miserable state imaginable and he has some friends come to join him. And his friends try and give Job advice about his situation. But the way they see Job and his situation is through the lens of something called retribution theology. And simply stated, retribution theology says that the universe is ran in a certain way. When someone is good, they will receive good things in life. When they are bad, they will receive bad things in life. And it's a super simple way of explaining it, but at the heart of it is this idea that if somebody is suffering, if someone is losing things, someone is experiencing the loss that Job has, then clearly, If God is good, he wouldn't do that just randomly. Clearly, Job must be being punished. And so his friends, although they mean well, they've come alongside Job and they're telling him, you're suffering because you have sin in your life. this is a horrible thing for Job to experience because he's lost everything and now he's being accused of even more. But in the midst of that, he maintains his innocence. Now, jumping into this week, I wanna show you how Job responds because Job is gonna respond to his friends sometimes, but for the most part, and this is fascinating, Job will respond to his accusations by going to God and he takes his cries to God. Job nine, eight through nine, we see some of this. Job says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? Now, briefly, we've talked about this. The majority of Job is written through Hebrew poetry. And if you're reading it in your Bibles, you're going to see that the text is centered. Uh, in in, in your Bibles, it doesn't just, it's like not a left-hand margin type of thing like most of the other Bible is. So it's telling you, this is Hebrew poetry. And in this, Job is speaking poetry to invoke an image. And I want you to focus on the image. He says, who alone stretched out the heavens? So picture a, a king of kings, a Lord of lords, someone who is omnipotent, all powerful, like who alone can stretch out the heavens? And then it says, and trample the waves of the sea. Now picture that, put that in your mind, and trampled the waves of the sea. The sea in ancient Near Eastern thought was a place of chaos. And so you're meant to picture a God who is so powerful that he walks on the sea of chaos. He walks on the water and he's made the stars and constellations. Section goes on. Verse 10 and 11. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. This is rich poetry. Again, the images of a mighty creator God who walks on the water, but here's the sad news. Job says, This mighty God who tramples the sea of chaos, he just passes by me and I see him not. He moves on and I do not perceive him. In other words, Job's lament is this. God is so powerful, so incredible, so beyond human capabilities, it's as if we can't even approach him. God just passes you by. He's beyond you. He's too far beyond you. The theological word for this is transcendence. Transcendence deals with the fact that God is so far above and beyond us, we we can't even comprehend this being. I mean, think, this is the claim. Christians believe that God is omniscient, omnipotent, immutable, and those are all theological terms that mean God is unchanging. He changes not. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. He is Omnipotent, He could do all things. He's omniscient. He knows all things. Let's just camp on knowing all things for a moment. God is a being who knows all knowledge, all possible knowledge, and he knows it in his eternal now. He doesn't go from one thought to another. He doesn't have to, oh, I'm working on this issue on the universe, and then I jump to this other thought, and then I go here. God knows all things simultaneously in his eternal now. I'm talking about every human being, all their names, all the hairs on their heads, every blade of grass, how many weeds you have in your backyard, how many grains of sand there are, how many planets there are, how many stars there are, how many oxygen atoms there are in your living room right now. He knows all things eternally. And he doesn't even have to move from thought to thought. And Job is saying, I am suffering and I'm maintaining my innocence, but how can I even bring my case to such a being? How could I get past the transcendence? In other words, the distance between Job and God is too much. There's a gap and it's too big the distance between finite human beings and infinite almighty God, it's too big. And so Job says, I can't even perceive him. He just passes by me as he tramples on the waves. Now at this point, that tone and those wrestlings of Job will continue. But in the midst of all of that, there's these little hints at something going on in Job's cries and his laments. And the little hints are pointing to something, pointing to something far out there, very transcendent. But when you start to read them, they're they're spooky. I mean, they're creepy. I don't wanna show you this. They're creepy. It's, It's right in the middle of the book of Job and he starts hinting at a certain thing. Look at this, Job 16, 18 through 19. O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. Did you catch that? So I said, it's spooky. This is weird. He says, I have a witness in heaven who testifies for me. It's like, what are you talking about, Job? What are you talking about? is there a witness in heaven bearing testimony to God of Job's innocence? And the answer in the book of Job is is like, no. Who's in the heavenly courtroom? The accuser, Satan is in the courtroom and he's not testifying to the innocence of Job. He's making accusation against Job. But yet somehow in the midst of this suffering and lament and these these cries that are talking about God being transcendent, he's like, there's someone else and that person is my witness in heaven. Here's another, another one, it goes on, verse 20. My friends, they scorn me, and my eyes, they pour out tears to God. Horrible situation. <clears throat> that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Now again, this is rich, rich poetry, and what Job is talking about is he's longing for someone to be able to talk to God and bring his case. In a very similar manner, Job is saying, I can talk to my neighbor. I can talk to my neighbor and we can work things out. But between me and God, who is the neighbor that can talk both to God and talk both to humans? Who is that person that stands in the middle? Another one, this is it's crazy, this is crazy. Job 19, Job declares, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. It's like, what's going on? Job is crying out, God is transcendent. His friends are accusing him. Job kind of wrestles with this idea that if only he had someone as a witness, but you know, as the reader, the person who is in heaven is the accuser making accusation. But then Job says, yeah, no, 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 My redeemer lives. And then he's it's like, mark my words, even though my body may be destroyed, I will somehow in my flesh, see God, and God himself will stand upon the earth. Now, this stuff isn't all over the place. It's just in a few spots. The rest of Job's lament, it, it, it's, it's sad. He's wrestling with his own suffering, his loss, and the transcendence of God. God is so far beyond us. He is an infinite being. How could we ever as finite people understand his ways? The distance is too grand. You don't have a neighbor who's God's neighbor. There's a gap and it is huge. Now here's the terrifying thing about what Job is claiming to be true is that Job is right. Job is right about the transcendence of God. God is so beyond finite human beings. There is no way we could possibly understand his ways. He is an omnipotent, omniscient, immutable being, an eternal being without beginning of days. He sits outside of times, knows all things past, present, and future, Why in our foolishness would we even attempt to think that we could begin to understand his ways? And is he a man that we can go and like talk to him? We can go and talk to him like a neighbor. And so Job is absolutely right. God is transcendent. He's so far and far and above us, we can't even begin to comprehend. He's that great. Now, Job is right about God's transcendence. However, it's not a full picture. It's not a full picture. Job is right in that God in his perfectly immutable, omniscient, omnipotent nature, it's like beyond our reach. How, do we, how could we ever get to him? So he's right in that transcendent issue, but it's not the full picture. See, thousands of years after the book of Job was written and 2,000 years ago from where we are today, the first Christians dared to make the audacious claim that in the person of Jesus, God had closed the gap. God had destroyed the distance. That in Jesus, that which is transcendent becomes imminent and close and near. Now, the first Christians made these claims in very unique ways. They're not modern people, so they, they, they don't prove their points in the way that we do. But they give you clues and hints in the gospel accounts of exactly what they're intending to communicate. So I'll show you just, just one. But Before I do, a review of one of the verses we looked at earlier from Job. Remember in Job 9, Job is talking about the transcendence of God. And he says, who alone stretched out the heavens, <clears throat> and then this is poetry, get the image in your mind, and trampled the waves of the sea. In ancient Near Eastern thought, the sea is a place of chaos. So you're supposed to picture a God who conquers the sea, who is not afraid of the chaos of the sea. And then as you're seeing that God who is that powerful, Job then says, <clears throat> Yeah, but that God is so so powerful, so transcendent. He passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Okay, now let me take you to the gospels. Keep that image in your mind of the God of the Old Testament scriptures, Yahweh, the I am of the Old Testament, walking on waters and passing by as if you can't perceive him. Mark chapter six, verse 47. The disciples are on a boat. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was all alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Now in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, these last phrases are identical to Mark's account. It's the exact same wording. You are to picture Jesus now walking on the waters of chaos and he is conquering them. And then it says, just like in Job, he's gonna pass by them, exact phrasing in Greek. He's gonna pass by them, but then, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. Now, a couple things. In the Old Testament, in Job, when God walks on the water, he passes by. Mark sets up his story as if that's going to occur. But then when his people cry out for them, rather than passing them by, he says, take heart, take courage, do not be afraid. And then in English, it reads, it is I. In Greek, the phrase is ego eimi, I am, I am. Which if you're familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, God in the Old Testament in Hebrew, Yahweh says to be, I am. And so you picture this, the chaos of the sea, the disciples are terrified and there's one walking on the water, but rather than passing them by, take heart, take courage. And then it's like, do you know who you stand before? I am a go a me, do not be afraid. And then what does Jesus do? he gets into the boat with them. In other words, God himself has come and got into the boat with humanity. That which was transcendent is now made near in the person and work of Jesus, the son of God. Another leader in the early church by the name of Paul the apostle would say it like this. For there is one God, And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So you have God, the transcendent, and human, finite human beings down here. And what happens is God himself comes as the God man and bridges the gap and now stands as the mediator. True God, true man, true God, true humanity. And in Jesus, God comes near to us. Now, prior to this, it wasn't as if God was completely unknowable. In the Old Testament, the, the people of Israel had a relationship with God, but we didn't know so much about the nature and character of God. What would God have of us? What would the perfect human being look like? How would the perfect human being behave? When Jesus comes, he shows us what humanity is all about. This is what perfect human beings ought to look like. So if you wanna know how you ought to live, how you ought to behave, how you ought to go about your life, you have the perfect example in Jesus who, when the, who is the transcendent God who becomes near and puts on display perfect humanity. There's a song by an old artist by, by the name of Richard Mullins. He died in a car accident decades ago and he has a song called Kingdom Come and he describes this idea like this we didn't know what love was till he came and he gave love a face and he gave love a name and he gave love away like the sky gives rain and sun. And what I like about this is it's like human beings, it's like we needed another human being. Yes, God, we know you are holy and we know you are transcendent. We know you're omnipotent. We know you're immutable. We know that but we also want you to be near and we want, us, want you to show us what it looks like to do this humanity thing. And Jesus comes and he gives love a face and he gives it a name. The lyrics go on. We were looking for heroes. He came looking for the lost. We were searching for glory and he showed us a cross. Now we know what love is because he loved us. we we now know what ultimate love looks like embodied in a human being because the transcendent God did that on our behalf. And when he came, he came not only to display this for us, he came to die on a cross in order that we might be brought into his family. And so right in the center of the book of Job is these deep wrestlings with the amazing powerfulness of God, the transcendence of God, but also a longing for nearness. And it's in the person and work of Jesus Christ that we find that. And so two things coming out of this. First, we all know it's chaotic times, global pandemic, all kinds of issues going on in our culture. And we like Job can sometimes be like, God, where where are you? Where are you? What's going on? I know you're so high and above and beyond and transcendent, but I need you near. What the scriptures claim is that in Jesus, God came near to us. And subsequent to that, Jesus sent his spirit to indwell with believers. So, you as a Christian are closer to God than you can ever imagine, closer than you feel in this moment. The Spirit of Jesus resides in you and in His church. And so, when we look and we're scared and we're worried and we have anxious thoughts, you need to picture the one who tramples on the sea, the one who walks on the waters of chaos. And then you need to picture him not passing by you, but by telling you, take heart, do not be afraid. Do you know who I am? I am Jesus, the son of the living God. Secondly, out of that, because the spirit of Jesus indwells in us, we ought to be the people, the church ought to be the people that demonstrates to the world, the nearness of God, the love of God. We are to help bridge that gap. We are called the reconcilers in the, scripture, in the scriptures. If people want to know God, they should be able to find him in people who are indwelled with the spirit of Jesus. And let me tell you, we are in desperate need of Christians being Christians right now. The world is in desperate need of Christians to be Christians, to embody the power and the presence of the living God, to follow him faithfully, to obey his commands and show the world what Jesus is all about. Because let me tell you, man, this world is in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And so two things out of week three, the God who was transcendent has come near to us and he gets in the boat with humanity. And he says, take heart, take courage. Do you know who I am? And then out of that, he gives us his spirit. And so his people ought to embody something different than the rest of the world. And we need to trust this Jesus precisely because he got in the boat with us. And so I challenge you all to not let your anxious thoughts Conquer your mind, to not let doubt or insecurity or fear, all of those things are real. But I challenge you to to go back to this image of the transcendent one getting in the boat with you and then you following in his footsteps like a true disciple. I'm gonna pray and then we will stand and recite the Lord's prayer together. Father God, um, we thank you for your son that your son closed the gap, closed the distance. He drew near to us from heaven. He sought us. He found his bride. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are not only holy and transcendent, but you are imminent, you are close, you are near, closer to us than the air in our lungs, Lord. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for comfort. We thank you for your spirit. Empower your church, empower this church, this local expression of church, South Valley Community Church, empower us to carry with us your power and your presence to a world that's in desperate need of your son. It's in his name we pray, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.